In this episode, we discuss the history of wargames up to the dawn of the 20th century, including one specific wargame that dominated the scene in the 1800s for a lot of reasons that we're going to get into. Let's get to it! Let's start with the ancient world. The ancients made many attempts to create board games to serve as tactical training for military commanders or spies or merchants or anyone whose job required attention to detail and good so, planning. Basically, the gamification of war. Yeah, games like these were often played on square grids and they often featured an array of diverse pieces with complementary capabilities like chess or shogi. Or... So what countries in the ancient world practiced this? There were abstract games that were very popular in India, China, and Persia. Ooh, so mostly Middle and Far East? I would say that, yes. Europe didn't seem to get many of them until a little later, okay. after Rome fell. Ah, so Rome didn't practice war games, they just practiced war. They practiced a lot of games that used some strategy and things, but I was not able to come across anything that says this is a legion, this is a chariot. Mm -hmm. This is the city wall that we're trying to take down. One of the earliest non-abstract war games was published in 1780 by Johann Christian Ludwig Helwig, a Prussian. Ah, that's uh, an airfall. Yeah. Prussia is part of Germany, and it's a part of Germany at this time in history. People love to use three or four of their names. Hmm. Yeah. Okay, so what was his game on? It was one of the earliest non-abstract war games that I could find a reference for from 1780. It was referred to later on as just as Helwig's game. Hmm. Did it model any particular war? No, it didn't. Later on, in 1796, there was another game by another Prussian, Russia. Johann Georg Julius Venturini. He was another Prussian, despite the I at the end of his name. This game, in reference to Helwig's game, was bigger, had a bigger grid, and introduced some other factors and a bigger rule set. So what element did the game have? It not only had the larger grid, it introduced factors like weather, supply convoys, seasons, and mobile bakeries. Mobile bakeries? Yeah. Ah, food chain. It was one of the first games that today's gamers might categorize as operational level war games. Ah, okay. Yeah. Now, a little while after that, 1806, still moving along, pretty slowly at this point, an Austrian named Johann Ferdinand Opitz, and I'm guessing at the pronunciation is spelled O-P-I-Z. Mm -hmm. He developed a war game, and he decided he was going to market it not just to soldiers, but to civilians for Ooh, fun. For fun? Yeah. So this is the first time it intended to be used by non-military personnel. Interesting. That's right. It's, it's something that they dared to share with the general public. This way they can conscript them later? <laughs> Maybe. That wasn't enough for him, though. He simulated the unpredictability of real warfare with dice. Mm. Now, this was very controversial at the time. After all, dice games are not for military officers. They are for gamblers and commoners. And some gamers, including Helwig, he couldn't stay silent about this. He designed his war game for leisure, but he still felt that introducing chance would dilute the skill required to excel at the game and ultimately would spoil all the fun. So, uh, no one wants to gamble at war then? <laughs> well, they don't want to admit they're gambling with war. <laughs> Especially at the beginning of the war. When the war starts, you know, you're trying to portray it like a sure thing. Mm-hmm. 
meaning like predictable, like, oh, this unit will lose to that unit, and then this unit always trumps that unit. Yeah. But we now don't have with to... the dice, you introduce an element of chance of losing even though you should win. Now we come to Kriegspiel. Ooh, Finally arrives. That's Comes a nice German-sounding name. Oh, yeah. Dual Krieg is German for war, and Spiel, as you know, <laughs> is German for game. Right now in Germany, there's the Essen Spieltage, which is game days. What happens in October every year. So Kriegspiel comes on the scene, put together by George Leopold von Reiswitz. And he released the prototype of the Kriegspiel game right around the time President Madison was fleeing the burning remnants of the White House. Uh, a category game or is this a specific game? It is a specific game. It used little wooden blocks, little pieces of lead, and... Wooden meeples? They don't mention meeples. But maybe <laughs> that really okay. wouldn't surprise me. Wooden army men, then. Yeah. Well, the Prussian princes, and there were a lot of them, ultimately heard about this, and they got excited about it. They hadn't had a war in a long time, and they'd like to at least play a war game when mm-hmm. they heard that war games existed. After they finally got their demonstration, they excitedly recommended the game to the king. Ooh, the king. Yeah. King Willem III of Prussia. Big okay. pharmaceutical center, too. So they recommended the game to King Willem III. Wow, so the king was waiting for his fresh copy of the game, too. Yeah, he was excited about it. And he didn't just get any copy of the game. He got a game board with porcelain tiles and adorned with terrain uh, depicted in painted bas-relief. So he got the, the kickbacker exclusive. Oh, yeah, with, a, with a, its own cabinet that op- like I think it opened with like three doors and stuff. The deluxe edition. Okay. Yeah, oh, definitely. Now... I can't believe this happened, but Reiswitz actually lost interest in the game. Now, How would he mean? In which way did he lose interest? He just didn't want to work on the game anymore or promote the game anymore. Huh. I mean, you'd figure in a place like this, this time in history, that if you actually get the king's attention in a positive way, you'd want to kind of hitch your wagon to this for your future fortunes and those of your family and your descendants. But eh, you already got the king to buy a game. What is he going to do to top that? Get the emperor to buy it? Hey. So when Reiswitz lost interest in the game, his son, George Heinrich Rudolf Johann von Reiswitz, took over the game and developing it and advertising it. And he got help from a circle of junior military officers who hung around in Berlin. It was kind of the closest thing that they had then to a regular gaming group. So all the designers were military officers at one point? Most of the contributors who offered suggestions and things were military officers, yeah. Reisvitz Jr. was still so excited about taking the game over. His father's game. Yeah, his father's game. And he decides he's going to promote it by going to Russia. So he goes looking for an audience with the Tsar and told them all about the game. But he failed to win them over. Oh. I don't know if just the stereotypical Russian skepticism or just the suspicion of anybody foreign. That's how monarchs of the time tended to think of people coming from a different country saying, I've got a great idea for you. Here's what you should do. Consider a military secret? Well, that's another thing. Suppose Russia goes to war soon and is able to actually do something with the expertise they gain from playing the game of Kriegspiel. Who are some of the most likely people that they're going to go to war with? Yeah, Germany and Russia, they went to war an awful lot hmm. at that time. So he failed to sell his game to the Russians. He then what? D- he did. His next step was to introduce the concept of an umpire for the game. Oh, an umpire. So like somebody officiating the game? Yeah, uh, Dealing the game? 
it helped remove some of the skepticism that some people had about the idea of using dice in the games. Aha. Uh-huh. So what, now the uh, Empire was rolling the dice for them? Or he would determining the result of battle? Well, different umpires had different ways of actually adjudicating what was going on in the, you know, in the battles, in the games of Kriegspiel. And they didn't just grab some guy off the street to be the umpire. Sure. Probably uh, got a... Kriegspiel umpires were in great demand. And they got demand. paid quite a bit for doing these things. <laughs> Where can I get these jobs? <laughs> yeah. Oh, oh, you'd be great at this. They also started to adapt the rules to introduce the concept of partial losses and partial victories. Instead of just removing pieces off the board like you do in chess. Oh, well, you took my knight. Here you go. So this is the first instant of step losses. Yes. Okay, so some more time goes by. In 1824, Reiswitz Jr. is invited to present his war game to the king and his senior generals. And they were impressed. And they endorsed the game as a training tool. Now, the chief of staff was General von Mufling, and he declared, This is no ordinary sort of game. This is schooling for war. I must and will recommend it most warmly to the army. Very nice. I bet you that made it sell quick off the press with that kind of endorsement. Oh, yeah. The star of Kriegspiel continues to rise. The king ordered that every one of his regiments purchase a Kriegspiel set with official funds and play the game on a regular basis. Yeah, that yeah. sounds really cool. Get paid to play game. And this was the first war game ever to be widely adopted by a military as a serious tool for training and research. So, Joe, what did a stat of Creek Beal look like? It often came in a latched case or box, uh, had a map with it, and the blocks had some pretty intricate things on them. Like For example, it didn't just have infantry. Lots of times they would say, this is a half battalion, these are Jaegers. The cavalry would be more square than the rectangular infantry and artillery. The artillery sometimes would have a number on it to say you know, how powerful or how heavy the cannon balls were that they were using the artillery to fire. So it's the first block game as well. Nice. There were smaller squares for single men or single riders. Wow. Go modeled right down to an individual rider? Yeah. If there was a big unit of them, a unit of 40 men couldn't necessarily be broken into smaller pieces. They mm-hmm. weren't detachable like that. They weren't there yet. But there were things like pontoon wagons. And the set I'm looking at right now show horse artillery, 6-pound, 7-pound, and 12-pound, along with munitions wagons that don't actually fire anything, but just Hmm. carry more supplies. So they also need to keep track of their supply train as well. Uh Uh-huh. There are also pieces that are only there to exchange partial losses. They go down So, for example, when a, a piece got damaged, you would exchange it with one of those? Yes, In fact, what we call hit points are not that far off of what is going on. So, Reiswitz Jr. established a workshop where he could mass-produce and distribute Kriegspiel. Yeah. He sold the game's material in a box set priced at 30 thalers. How would that price out today? Well, there is no longer a currency called the thaler out there, but its legacy does live on in the word dollar. That'd be about $600. Wow. But for a wooden set... And all the wooden pieces, yeah, that's about right. I buy that. Yeah, and a lot of intricate work on some of those little wooden blocks and on some of the uh, some of the maps. And think of the history. Tell me about the dice, Joe. 
there were five dice. One was used to determine range damage inflicted by firearms or uh, skirmishers fighting in the open. Each face of the dice had several numbers on them. Like a chart? Yes. Oh, Mikey can love these dice because he hates charts. And now you have a dice full of charts? Ah, oh, yes. Got to show that to Mikey. The different numbers are there to indicate the amount of damage that this unit you are rolling for will inflict upon its target. And the reason for the different numbers is to provide different results depending on how close your piece is to the Uh, enemy piece. It's like a range table, so you do different damage at different ranges. Yes, it's a range table. Each actual Kriegspiel unit has a point value. Like hit point. It is very much like hit points. Uh Aha. Cavalry, for example, have seven times the hit points as infantry. This isn't so much because they're beefier, but because they move faster and they're more spread out than infantry are, so that a barrage of fire inflicts less damage on them as a group. Interesting, so the effective mass troop. Yeah. In 1827, Reiswitz Jr. committed suicide. And at this time in Prussia, it was considered disgraceful for a person to commit suicide. The widespread judgment of his disgrace hurt the game. It wasn't until 1860 that the game was widely played in the military again. So that's a 30-year receding of the game's popularity. But it did survive during that long night, thanks to the efforts of a small group of dedicated wargaming clubs in Berlin and other cities. Yay, wargaming clubs. Yeah. Yay, gaming clubs. Kriegspiel still ended up ruling supreme. There's a guy named Adrian Friedrich Wilhelm Julius Ludwig von Verdi Duvernois. Oh, wow. How many names was that? If you leave out the von and the du, it's seven names. That's almost twice as good as the last guy. (laughs) Now, this guy enlisted in the Prussian army in 1850, saw a lot of actions against the Austrians in the Battle of Königgrätz, where Germany handed Austria a decisive defeat, and... Then he became the general major, he served in the German Ministry of War, became the governor of Strasbourg, and was made Germany's general of the infantry. And an indispensable part of this meteoric rise was his status as a Kriegspiel demigod. So a celebrity gamer. Yeah. Yeah. The 1862 Kriegspiel manual incorporated advancing technologies like railroads, telegraph, breech-loading cannons, and other advancements that weren't around back in 1812. So the game got an upgrade. The uh, telephone pole expansion pack. Yeah. Now, in 1866, Germany had not been to war for a long time. And Kriegspiel was basically how these guys got their war fix. You can stay at peace by practicing for war. And four years after that war broke out with Austria, Prussia had already started and ended and defeated France in the Franco-Prussian War. Now, what was very interesting to a lot of people at the time was that the Prussian army didn't seem to have any significant advantage in weaponry or troop quality. And they were outnumbered more often than not. But you're saying that the the generals had superior tactics due to playing this game? Well, Germany was the only country in the world that practiced mandatory wargaming. And that led to a strategic advantage. People can speculate about it. As the 20th century dawned, the expansion of board games in general gave a lift to war games that ultimately took war games beyond the confines of strategy sessions of military officers and out into the general public. And that brings us to the beginning of the 1900s. Next time we'll talk about the explosion of board gaming and war gaming that came along in the 20th century. 
Thank you, Joe. I'm excited to see what the 20th century will bring to war games. See you next time.